Welcome to the JCCT Pulse, a podcast that brings you an overview of the most recent issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography and in-depth conversations with the article authors. Each episode, we will go over several hand-picked articles to keep you up to date with the latest in cardiovascular CT. I'm your host, Todd Valines, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cardiovascular CT and the Julian Ruffin Beckwith Distinguished Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia. It is my distinct pleasure to host on this edition of the JCCT Pulse, Dr. Eileen Hu Wang, who published a paper in this issue of the JCCT titled Comparison of Professional Medical Society Guidelines for Appropriate Use of Coronary Computed Tomography and Geography. Eileen did this work as a member of the Laboratory of Cardiovascular CT in the Cardiovascular Branch at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at the NIH in Bethesda, and she's currently a first-year radiology resident at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share my research. Yes, I Around the time I was a research fellow in the cardiovascular CT lab at the National Institutes of Health, I learned about the Protecting Access to Medicare Act, through which the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will require consultation with appropriate use criteria for the reimbursement of outpatient advanced cardiac imaging. This change was developed to increase appropriate imaging utilization and to identify practitioners whose ordering patterns are outliers and potentially require prior authorization. Appropriate use criteria, or AUC, from qualified provider-led entities and professional medical societies such as the American College of Cardiology, ACC, and the American College of Radiology, or ACR, will be eligible, and each physician practice will choose which clinical decision support tool to use. There is little data on how the AUC may vary by organization, so in our study, we sought to compare the appropriateness of coronary CT angiography, or CCTA, exams using the published guidelines from the ACC and the ACR. Terrific. So tell me about the methods. How did you conduct your study? Yeah, so this was a single-center study, and from June 2014 to 2016, we had 1,005 consecutive subjects clinically referred from 42 cardiology practices for the evaluation of known or suspected coronary artery disease. These patients then received a contrast-enhanced CCTA exam. And chest pain symptoms and coronary artery disease risk factors were self-reported. And then we calculated the pretest probabilities of obstructive coronary artery disease for each subject using previously published coefficients. We also used symptoms, risk factors, pretest probabilities, sequential testing data, and medical histories to assign appropriateness ratings according to the 2013 ACC multimodality AUC and the ACR appropriateness criteria. Yeah, there's so much interest in these appropriate use criteria. So what did you find? How well did these appropriate use criteria or appropriateness criteria agree? Yeah, overall, we found that there was poor agreement between the AUC guidelines with a kappa statistic of 0.27. And comparing the ACC versus ACR, we found 40% versus 72% exams were rated appropriate, 24% versus 3% were maybe appropriate, and 36 versus 25% were rarely appropriate exams. And the appropriateness ratings were in complete agreement for only 55% of the total exams. Further looking into the discrepancy, we noted that for 14% of the exams, 
the ACR rated the exam as appropriate based on the presence of chest pain symptoms, whereas the ACC rated the exam as rarely appropriate because despite symptoms, the individuals had a normal prior stress test or low pretest probability of coronary artery disease. And then on the other hand, for 4% of the total exams, the ACR rated the exam as rarely appropriate because the subjects had intermediate risk of coronary artery disease with no symptoms, but the ACC rated the exam as appropriate because of an abnormal or an uncertain prior test. So overall, we found that there was poor agreement between these AUC guidelines. Yeah, really, really an interesting work because not a lot of research, as you mentioned, has looked at how well these agree. I was struck by the fact that the level of appropriateness was only about 40% according to the ACC and it went up to 72% by the ACR. That's a really big difference, particularly given that many of these appropriate criteria are now utilized in the electronic health records as a decision support aid to guide the choice of test and to let people know whether a selected test, for example, coronary CT, if that is appropriate. And then lastly, the last point I'll make, and maybe you can comment on this, was that you know in both of the criteria that anywhere from 25 to 36% of exams were listed as rarely appropriate. So any thoughts on that? Uh, did you expect to find this big a difference and this many exams as rarely appropriate? We were, uh, yes, more surprised by the number of rarely appropriate exams. But like I mentioned, there were kind of varying factors that accounted for this, whether it was a lack of symptoms of the patient prior to getting the test or overall a low pretest probability, and some of the patients had already received previous stress testing, such as nuclear medicine testing, that had either negative or negative results, which then in the different criteria for AUC kind of resulted in a rarely appropriate CCTA exam. Yeah, so really interesting results, and I wanted to congratulate you and your entire group of investigators, the study that you led, and your senior investigator, Marcus Chen, really important work. I would comment on a couple things that I was struck by in addition to that, which we've already discussed. And first off is that these AUCs are very different in complexity. You noted in the paper that, for example, the ACC criteria use ECG interpretation, whether it's interpretable, the ability of the patient to exercise and the results of prior testing, as opposed to the ACR criteria, which were more based on symptoms and cardiovascular risk factors. And, and you know, we don't know what the best approach is, but it, it strikes me that maybe in the future, there's room for collaboration to try to get, I think, probably better alignment and consistency so that ordering providers aren't given mixed messages, depending on which of these AUCs their EHR, their decision support tool utilizes. It looks like an opportunity for collaboration. And then secondly, maybe an opportunity for more education to referring providers and that we're seeing this many rarely or inappropriate uh, tests ordered. Now, who's to say that that's not wrong? Now, you also looked at the yield, the diagnostic percentage of patients who had obstructive coronary disease, if I recall. Is that correct? Yes, we did look at that. We saw that by both AUC methods, there was a low rate of obstructive coronary disease observed in the rarely appropriate exams. But I do think that further research is needed in this outcome data, and previous studies have shown conflicting results on the yield of inappropriate compared to appropriate CCT exams. So investigation into which of the AUC criteria would best provide cost-effective care while improving patient outcomes is still required. 
Well, congratulations, Eileen, and to your entire group. And we hope to see you know, multi-center studies that look at this in the future, particularly as our AUCs evolve and hopefully get better. And you're right, we need the outcomes studies to look at whether these truly improve patient outcomes and better value of imaging. All right. Well, thank you again. It's Dr. Eileen Hu Wang discussing the comparison of professional medical society guidelines for appropriate use of coronary computed tomography and geography. Thank you. Thank you. It's my distinct pleasure to have with us today Dr. Eric Williamson. Dr. Williamson is a professor of radiology and practices at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And the paper we're going to discuss is Dynamic Computed Tomographic Assessment of the Mitral Annulus in Patients with and Without Mitral Valve Prolapse. So welcome, Dr. Williamson. Thanks very much, Todd. Well, uh, Eric, it's really great to have you. I would really point all our listeners to this month's issue of the JCCT and to really read this paper. But to get us started, can you describe for us the, the background or rationale for this study that you all performed? You bet. Absolutely, Todd. So we have at our institution a very active, interestingly, a robotic-assisted mitral valve repair program. And the the gentleman who was running this program at the time, cardiovascular surgeon, obviously, was a pretty forward-thinking guy. And this is, you know, this 10 years ago now. He came to us in cardiovascular imaging and just said, you know, we, we do a lot of echoes for the evaluation of mitral valve disease, but I wonder if it would be possible for us to do a combination CT of the coronaries and then also a CT of the heart before we take a patient into robotic-assisted mitral valve repair uh, so we don't run into any surprises. And of course, we were we were happy to oblige that. This was well before our initial forays into TAVR and other valvular disease. We thought this would be an opportunity for us to gain some experience with CT of valvular heart disease. And so we undertook to perform retrospective ECG-gated CT in these patients, looking at their coronary arteries and then looking at their mitral valves. And so we initially became aware of a cohort of patients with primary mitral prolapse, largely P2 leaflet prolapse, not surprisingly. And as we evaluated these patients, we noticed that there were a number of differences in terms of mitral valve morphology, some of which were expected. Obviously, these patients had prolapse and they had dilatation of their left ventricles, but there were some things that we weren't expecting to see. And so we began to notice that the way the annuluses, specifically the mitral annuluses in these patients behaved was very different from the regular, quote-unquote, regular cardiac CT that we were performing, for instance, on patients with chest pain or that we were doing a coronary evaluation on. And so we began to look for a way for us to describe those changes in morphology and the differences in the way that the annulus deformed as the heart beat. And we honestly didn't have any more sophistication to it other than that. We began to look around for tools, and one of our imaging partners had a prototype software program that was able to analyze the mitral annulus. And so we employed it and we began to look at what we might see. And that's that's basically how we got involved in this space through a collaboration with our cardiovascular surgery colleagues. Now, what a, what a terrific story. Well, walk us through the methods of your study. How did you try to assess these differences? Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah. And so we knew that we had a cohort of pretty homogeneous, honestly, pretty homogeneous mitral prolapse patients. And so we looked for a control group. As you know, we, we don't perform cardiac CT, particularly not retrospective ECG gated cardiac CT on normal volunteers or patients without disease. So we ended up taking a look at our ED chest pain patients, many of whom were negative for mitral valve disease. And so that formed our control group. And we, like I say, we had this prototype tool for evaluating the mitral annulus, and it took a 3D volumetric data set, such as is available with three-dimensional CT scan, and it allowed us to render the mitral annulus in quote-unquote normal patients, the ED chest pain population, and then compare that to these mitral valve prolapse patients. And basically what we looked at initially was let's take a look at the size of the mitral valve. Let's take a look at uh, the planar surface area. Let's take a look at the circumference of the mitral annulus compared with diseased and non-diseased patients. And then over time, that evolved into, okay, what are the other parameters that define the mitral valve? Uh, intercommissural distance, septolateral distance, annular height, and then ellipticity. Is there anything that allows us not only to tell normals from abnormals with regard to annular dynamics and sizing, but also is there anything that allows us to inform what we do when evaluating the mitral annulus? Is there a phase of the cardiac cycle that would be best for this evaluation? Is there, do they look different as the heart beats? You know, what are the differences in these two patient populations? And so that's what we came up with was you can tell very quickly the difference between a normal and a mitral prolapse patient on the basis of their mitral annulus. The mitral annulus in patients with prolapse is much bigger, but that's not the end of the differences. The other thing that's interesting between these two groups is how the diameter changes throughout the cardiac cycle. And that's kind of where we began to get into some of the subtleties of what might have implications for planning of mitral valve intervention. Yeah. So tell us the results. You looked at 100 subjects. You mentioned how you defined these cohorts and you compared 50 patients with mitral prolapse versus 50 controls. And what did you notice? You mentioned already they were they were larger, but uh, what else did you find? Yeah. So that's the Interestingly, but you know, honestly, intuitively, in a normal patient, when the heart contracts, when the left ventricle contracts, when it shortens and decreases in diameter, the mitral annulus gets smaller. Honestly, not a lot, right? The mitral annulus is obviously attached to the left ventricle. It changes a little bit, gets a little bit smaller as the heart contracts, but not a ton. The exact opposite happens in patients with mitral prolapse. In a mitral prolapse patient, it's almost like the dynamics of the annulus become decoupled from the ventricle. And as the ventricle squeezes in systole, the mitral annulus bulges. So it gets larger in systole as compared to diastole. It's kind of a striking difference, honestly. Wow, fascinating. And some really great uh, images for those of you listening. Uh, I would take a look at this paper that really demonstrates this dynamism of the mitral valve anus. So, so you mentioned really the so what, you know, what does this mean for our interventions going forward? There's so much interest in the transcatheter mitral valve interventions. And how do, how do your findings potentially influence that evolving and burgeoning field? Yep, this is really the key, right? And I would like to also state that this paper represents step one, but there's more work that needs to come here as well. One of the most important things for us to all keep in mind is that unlike, you know, you do just as I do coronary CT angiography, most of the time I reconstruct patients who are getting a coronary CT and end diastole. And in some patients with a high heart rate, I reconstruct in systole. The data in this paper suggests that single-phase reconstruction, single-temporal-phase reconstructions of a cardiac CT data set will not be adequate 
to really analyze a mitral valve annulus. And it, particularly in cases of patients with prolapse, if you pick a single annulus phase and make a measurement, you could be significantly off simply because of the dynamism. And I think that this informs what we do, you know, in clinical practice, what we'd normally do in these patients is we play through the entire mitral annulus, pick a phase that we think is going to be the largest, and then measure that phase. It's still very time consuming to measure all of 20 phases as we did in this paper, but at least we begin to become informed about how we need to perform these studies really so we can get a comprehensive evaluation of the mitral annulus. Well, uh, I want to just uh, finish by congratulating you and your co-investigators on this really, I think, you know, important work that there's going to be so much that builds on your work going forward. And, you know, I would just urge our readers to pick this up in the most recent issue of the JCCT. Eric, thank you so much. You bet. Thanks, Todd. All right. Well, thank you very much. This is, again, the Dynamic Computed Tomographic Assessment of the Mitral Annulus in Patients with and Without Mitral Prolapse in the JCCT. My distinct pleasure to welcome to the JCCT Pulse today, Dr. Michael Morris, whose research paper titled Predicting Paravalvular Leak After Transcatheter Mitral Valve Replacement Using Commercially Available Software Modeling is published in this issue of the JCCT. Welcome, Mike. Thanks very much for the kind introduction, and I'm really honored to be invited onto the podcast to speak about our manuscript and and certainly honored to speak on behalf of our of our heart team, our co-leads, Dr. Prashad and Dr. Fang, as well as another of our, inter- our interventionalist, Dr. Byrne. So thanks very much. Thanks for coming on. And Dr. Morris is from the Cardiovascular Institute, Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona, and really a great group of investigators from Arizona, Tucson, and, and that area. So tell me a little bit of the background. What was the rationale for doing this study? I mean, why, why you know, our readers may not be super familiar with transcatheter mitral valve replacement. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a relatively new technology. And one of the challenges with TMVR, transcatheter mitral valve replacement, is a relatively high rate of paravalvular leak after the procedure, especially for patients who have mitral rings or native mitral disease. Now, currently, we perform a software model routinely on CT scans that are obtained for pre-procedural planning purposes to assess for the neo-LVOT size. So we're looking for potential outflow track obstruction. And so we asked ourselves whether or not there was an opportunity to use this same modeling technique to potentially predict paravalvular leak after TMBR. And so specifically, we hypothesized that the presence of visual gaps between the virtual prosthesis and the mitral annulus as defined on CT would be predictive of significant PVL, so anything greater than mild PVL, after TMBR. Terrific. So how did you do your study? Walk us through it. I understand you studied 58 consecutive patients at two institutions, and it included a variety of different, I guess, patient cohorts, if you will. Some were valve and valve, some were valve and ring, some were valve and MAC. And how did you do the measurements? Yeah, thanks for the question. So This was a retrospective study of patients who had either failed bioprosthetic mitral valves, annual plasty rings, or extensive mitral annular calcification and had prohibitive surgical risk. And these were all patients that underwent TMVR with a sapien valve in the mitral position at two academic institutions within a larger healthcare network. Now, all patients were evaluated ahead of time by an interdisciplinary 
structural heart team, and they underwent comprehensive echo and CT prior to TMBR. And importantly, patients who had a neo-LVOT area less than 1.5 centimeters squared did not undergo TMBR due to concerns for LVOT obstruction. Now, as you asked, to model the risk of paravalvular leak using the software model, we first segmented the mitral annulus using a commercial post-processing software. And then next, we placed a virtual sapien valve, which corresponded to the actual implanted valve size, into the center of the mitral annulus with the valve height constrained to the ceiling skirt dimension. So the ceiling skirt dimensions of the sapien valve vary depending on the size of the sapien valve 23, 26, or 29. And then what we did is we dynamically scrolled through the CT data set in the short axis plane. And if we saw a sustained gap between the virtual valve skirt and the mitral annulus, that was considered a positive predictor for moderate or severe PVL. Now, this was independently performed by two readers, one experienced reader and one with less than one year of experience looking at CT. And all readers were blinded to both the echo findings and the clinical outcomes. Wow, terrific work. And so what did you find? Yeah, uh, so that's the exciting part. So as you mentioned, we had 58 patients, about half were valve and valve, and the other half were split uh, between valve and ring and valve and MAC. Now, moderate or severe mitral regurgitation developed in 20% of our cohort after TMBR, and, and that was almost exclusively seen in patients who underwent TMBR with valve in ring or valve in MAC. Now, the software model correctly predicted significant PVL in two-thirds or 67% of the patients. That resulted in a sensitivity of 67% overall and an overall specificity of 96% a positive predictive value of 89% and a negative predictive value of 86%. So I know that's a lot of numbers, but if we just focus on the patients at highest risk for significant PVL, which is the valve and ring and valve and MAC cohort, the model had a sensitivity of 73% and a specificity of 94%. Now, we are imagers. We, we exist in the imaging space and we're talking. So I just, just to give you an idea about the size of the gap that we're talking about, the average size of the gap that we saw between the virtual valve and the mitral annulus was about 40 millimeters, so not subtle. So this is something that's going to be pretty obvious to those of us that are used to looking at CTs. Now, in terms of predictors for PVL, on the univariate analysis, not surprising, this sustained gap between the virtual valve and the mitral annulus was associated with a significant risk for PVL. The same with a, a large mitral annular area and importantly, less oversizing relative to the annular diameter. But on a multivariate analysis, that sustained gap on the software model was the only thing that remained a significant predictor for, for PVL after TMBR. Terrific. So, And it sounds like also between the two readers, there was a very high level of agreement, even though one of them was, was much less experienced, which I think hopefully for our readers might suggest that in, you know, if in the future, if this is something that is commonly performed, that, that this can be done. It's not prohibitively difficult. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a very good point. And that's one of the reasons why we had two separate readers perform this independently, one with a lot of experience and one with not a lot of experience to show that when we're looking at in terms of implications for this kind of work, one of the things is that it's actually fairly easy to teach. It should be fairly easily adoptable by a number of people. It doesn't require a lot of institutional experience to become facile at performing this analysis. 
Last quick kind of question for you, or really two questions is, you know, how does, from a procedural standpoint, how does knowing this information potentially influence their approach? And are, are you using this clinically at your institutions? Yeah, super important questions. You know, having this information available, right, just having the information is great, but more importantly is how could it impact patient care? And, you know, from my perspective, I think if you identify this gap on the software model, then that might suggest, you know, you could suggest to the interventionalist, well, maybe try, assuming you're using a sapien valve in the mitral position, try maybe overexpanding the valve or upsizing the valve, all of which can be modeled, by the way. Or if that's not possible, at least you can let the interventionalist know you may need to be prepared to plug a PVL. So even just making them more aware of potential complications has tremendous value. And then, you know, looking to the future, I think that this study was just done in sapien valves in the mitral position, but certainly it seems plausible that the same technique could be used for the newer devices that are specifically designed for TMBR and those that are, you know, currently in, in clinical trials. Well, well, terrific job with this study, this really, I think, hypothesis-generating study, which will lead to, to, as you mentioned, probably a really robust area of research and how can we better select patients, better select devices, and get better outcomes in the TMVR space. Again, I want to thank Dr. Michael Morris and his group of investigators, and I would urge all of our readers to pick up this issue of the JCCT and read this important article, Predicting Paravalvular Leak After TMVR Using Commercially Available Software Modeling. Thanks again, Mike. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for JCCT Pulse. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Want to read the articles we discussed today? They're available online along with the full issue at journalofcardiovascularct.com. The link is provided in the show notes. Members of SCCT receive online access to JCCT as part of their membership. See you next time. Thank you for listening.